Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, and welcome to part three of Morrison and Forrester's COVID podcast series. I'm Mike Ward, a partner at MoFo and a head of the firm's patent group and also head of our life sciences group. I'm joined today by three of my colleagues, Otis Littlefield, senior of counsel in our patent group, Bethany Hills, the head of our FDA group, and Rufus Pichler, who's a partner in our technology transactions group. Today, we'll be focused on something everyone is waiting and hoping for, and what may finally bring an end to the coronavirus pandemic, a safe and effective vaccine. So Otis, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So I've been at Morrison Forrester for 18 years, and I specialize in patent prosecution and licensing. Because I have a PhD in biochemistry, all of my work is in the life sciences, and I have a special emphasis on more complex systems, such as GM plants, stem cell therapeutics, and vaccines. Otis, why do we need vaccines? So it really goes to the immune system. The immune system has two main components. One is called the innate immune system. It reacts very quickly. As soon as the pathogen gets into a person, this reacts, but it's a very rote, routine response. It's the same every single time for each pathogen. And that allows pathogens to evolve. And now they can evade the very rapid immune system. To address this, we have a second Part, which is called the adaptive immune system. This literally will adapt to and specialize itself to recognize each new pathogen that we are infected by, but it takes its time. It takes two to four weeks for the adaptive immune system to create specialized targeting mechanisms that recognize with exquisite precision the exact new pathogen. So it works well, but it works slowly. That's where vaccines come in. Vaccines can be used to train the adaptive immune system so that it can already recognize a pathogen before you've ever been infected. So Otis, what are the general classes of vaccines? So as you might imagine, to train the immune system, you need something of the pathogen. So the simplest form is a live attenuated form of the pathogen. It's attenuated so it doesn't kill you, but the immune system can recognize it, practice on it, and create adapted molecules to target when the real pathogen comes in. That's not so safe because sometimes they can revert, become the fully pathogenic and, well, basically kill a person. So that's why we now generally use inactivated pathogen vaccines. That's where you kill the virus or the bacteria and use that as your vaccine. It's much safer, but it still has the possibility that you didn't fully kill it, so there are dangers. So we like generally for the more modern ones to use what's called a subunit. That's where you take just a piece of, or a couple of pieces of the virus or the bacteria and use that to make a vaccine. The problem with this is since you're only using pieces, you're not using the full organism, you miss context. So the immune system may not have as strong a response or an appropriate type response. So you need to do something, such as use an adjuvant to enhance the immune system response or use virus-like particles where you put it in the virus-like context so you trick the immune system into thinking it's an actual virus and creating an appropriate immune response. 
To address these issues, we now are working with viral vectors. That's you take an incredibly safe virus that cannot hurt you and you even kill it or again, further attenuate it, but then you replace a piece of this virus with a piece of the pathogen to train the immune system with. For the SARS-CoV-2, they use the spike protein, which is on the outside of the coronavirus and put it in a different virus as a vector. It's only ever actually been successful once so far, and that's for the recently approved Ebola vaccine. So it's very cutting edge, and there might be risk of it not working because it's only been proved to work once. The most exciting and new, never before used, is RNA or DNA. That's where you use the genetic material that basically is the blueprint for a viral or bacterial component. In this case, it's the blueprint to create the spike protein from the SARS-CoV-2 virus. You just give it the blueprint to the body, the body picks it up, manufactures the spike protein, generates an immune response, and if it works, fantastic. But it's never been tested, so we have no idea if this will work. Otis, we're recording this in the middle of October. Where are we with respect to vaccine development right now? So things have moved well along, and we are currently at a state where we have about 30 vaccine candidates are in phase one, 15 are in phase two, and we already have 10 in the final phase, phase three. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the ones in phase three, only three of them are classic inactivated virus vaccines. The remaining seven are the more sort of cutting edge, one being a subunit in a virus-like particle, Four are viral vectors using adenovirus, which are relatively safe. And one of those adenoviruses is actually from a chimpanzee. But then we have two, which are these absolutely cutting edge, never before tested mRNA vaccine. So as you can see, almost two thirds are very new cutting edge because these are very quick to adapt, but also carry uncertainty of, we don't even know if the mRNA ones will work at all. You might have heard that two of these vaccines in phase three clinical trials have been subject to clinical holds. Honestly, that is a routine thing that happens all the time. I would say that's a good sign. It shows that the regulatory authorities are doing their job, ensuring safety, saying, hey guys, there's a risk, let's put a hold, let's figure out what the heck just happened with this patient and then allow the trial to go forward as long as it's fully safe. The big question on everyone's mind is when will we get approval? Everything I've been reading has suggested that end of this year earliest, but the more realistic approval dates for the first fully approved vaccine should be the beginning of next year. So Bethany, who will be following me, she can go into more detail about the phase three, the approval process, as well as the possibility of earlier emergency youth authorization, which could be you know, as early as November or even maybe October this month, possibly. Thanks very much, Otis. Now we'll turn to Bethany Hills to talk us through some of the regulatory issues and public health aspects of a COVID vaccine. Bethany, can you give us a brief overview of the broader history of vaccine development? Sure. Vaccine development goes back nearly 400 years, so I don't think we have enough time for that in the podcast. But I'll give a quick overview, which is the first vaccine was actually for smallpox and used the process that Otis spoke about a moment ago, using, in fact, a a live component of the virus in order to stimulate the immune response. 
At this point in time, we have vaccines in the United States for 26 diseases. The most recent vaccine that was approved was for Ebola, and that was approved in December of 2019. Now, remember, the disease was identified in 1976. There was a series of small Ebola outbreaks over the period from 1976 until, in most recent memory, we should all remember the 2013 Ebola epidemic in West Africa. And in that process from 2013 until the vaccine being approved in 2019 was at that time considered a pretty, a pretty fast period to develop a vaccine. Chickenpox vaccine actually took 28 years to develop. And the quickest vaccine that we're aware of so far was the mumps vaccine. And that was identified in 1963, and a vaccine was available in 1967. So it was about a three to four year period. So we are learning lessons from the past. And I think at this point, given the hope and the timing that we might have a vaccine by end of this year or early next year, I think needs a little bit of pause and thought about what the history can teach us. What can you tell me about the process, Bethany? So usually there's two parts involved in a vaccine development process. A significant amount of work is done in the laboratory, done in studies in developing the formulation and actually getting the product ready to be tested. And then there is a pivot into clinical trials. Usually we see that this takes several years for each of those steps to happen. And of course, as we know, in the COVID-19 situation during our current pandemic, all of those aspects, there is an attempt to combine them in not in a stepwise fashion, but to run things simultaneously. So instead of waiting for clinical development to be entirely complete with stability studies or detailed information on manufacturing, there is a move into the clinic and actually testing humans as quickly as possible. And the manufacturing process is also being run in parallel to, in fact, our understanding is some of these are being manufactured or the manufacturing capacity has already been obtained. And so there's certainly a very different process being used. A lot of things are being run in parallel as opposed to being run in a stepwise fashion. So how does the FDA regulate vaccines under normal circumstances? In a normal circumstance, a vaccine would be approved through the Biologics Evaluation and Research Center, which is CBER. This is a process that requires safety and efficacy demonstrated based on two well-controlled studies. Usually there would be a typical clinical development process, phase one, safety trials, figuring out dose ranges, then moving into phase two and phase three to figure out efficacy. And in fact, no vaccine has ever been approved on only one well-controlled study. And so this is what we're looking at, is a process where there will only be those studies that Otis mentioned will only have actually one well-controlled study. These are the studies that are in phase three already. So how are we able to talk about a vaccine that could be approved so soon after the virus was first identified? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, it's important to remember this virus was first identified 
by humans in late 2019. It hasn't even been a year yet. I know for many of us, it feels like a century, but it has not even been a year yet. And so we do need to keep in mind that there's a need here, given the pandemic nature, for using an expedited pathway. And FDA has that available to them under something called an emergency use authorization. And we've talked about this before, Mike, on some of our other podcasts, but I'll just quickly review what an, an emergency use authorization requires. It does require that FDA should find some reasonable demonstration of safety and efficacy and that there should be no other alternatives. And I think that that seems pretty clear based on the circumstance that we're dealing with here in the COVID-19 situation. However, there's a lot of concern around whether or not this vaccine will actually be used in the population. So we have to think about that from a public health perspective too. FDA is an active participant in a program called Operation Warp Speed. And Operation Warp Speed is actually helping fund, government-funded, many of these studies that are working through the clinical trial process in order to determine if there will be enough safety and enough efficacy in order to underlay FDA's EUA authorization. And it's important in this process because FDA has not previously authorized vaccines in an EUA process. So not only have they not authorized vaccines on the technology that Otis talked about, which is going to be a new groundbreaking way of developing vaccines based on the science, this is also a brand new process for FDA to go through. And the process is one that has not been extremely transparent, but it is becoming more transparent over the last few weeks in particular, as the companies who are the forerunners in some of these phase three studies are coming closer to having enough data to actually present to FDA. We, as the public observers, are getting some more information about how FDA will actually be reviewing this. FDA released a guidance in early October, a few weeks ago, that finalized their process. There will actually be a public meeting that everyone who's interested in will be able to hear what is going on about the particular vaccine that will be considered for approval. FDA is requiring 24 hours of reporting for interim data analysis from these companies. There's a requirement very clearly that there be a full two-month follow-up after the vaccination during the study to make sure that the safety aspects are really being considered. So there's a number of important safety and efficacy factors that FDA has outlined in its guidance. The other thing that we know is happening, which is really unique here, is that there is a shared data safety monitoring board. I don't know, Mike, if you know what a data safety monitoring board is. Would you like me to give a quick overview? That would be great. Great. So in case you don't know what a DSMB is, since I know that acronym off the tip of my tongue, that is a board that oversees data interim and otherwise reviews adverse events that's coming in from clinical studies. Otis mentioned a couple of the studies for these vaccines are actually on clinical hold, which unfortunately can be a standard process in a clinical trial. However, it is important to know that in this case, any of the companies who are participating in the government-funded Operation Warp Speed they are actually sharing a data safety monitoring board, which has independently appointed individuals. 
including Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the top sign-off on that data safety monitoring board, which will ultimately give the thumbs up or thumbs down to the companies who are submitting data and providing the information as to whether or not they should proceed to the FDA. And so there is an important involved process, independent people sitting on this, and also a really interesting component, which is shared safety information across a number of trials. And that is very unusual. We normally would not see that kind of shared data across trials. Thanks, Bethany. That was fantastic. Rufus, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Since this is your first time with us, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Thanks, Mike. I'm a partner in our technology transactions group, and I've worked with clients in the life sciences space for just over 20 years now. So Rufus, what are some of the unique commercial aspects to an accelerated vaccine development that you are seeing? So I'd say one really unique aspect here is the condensed development schedule that Bethany just described. So that schedule requires substantial at-risk investments at a very early stage. And that's a situation that's a little bit different from traditional vaccine development. So as Bethany and Otis discussed, the typical vaccine development cycle is usually much longer than what we're talking about here, you know, typically around 10 to 12 years on average, if not more. And development costs for vaccines are generally high, but usually they're incurred sequentially based on successful outcomes of certain development stages. You make investments in phase one, and if that's successful, you make investments in phase two, and et cetera. Um, so for example, investments in commercial scale manufacturing capacity so all the things you need to have in place to actually produce billions of doses of the vaccine are usually not made until phase three trial data indicates that regulatory approval is likely. For COVID-19 vaccines, this is very different. The accelerated schedule, basically from a discovery of the virus to anticipated approval of the vaccine within a year or a year and a half, means that many of these steps need to be taken at the same time. And to have any chance to be on the market some point next year, these companies that are developing vaccine candidates now need to have commercial manufacturing capacity secured right now, if not earlier this year, even though it's unclear at this point if their development efforts will actually be successful. So they're still in trial phase. There's still some ways from approval. So it's much more difficult for them to mitigate the financial losses if the product they're moving forward is ultimately not successful. Rufus, how are companies assessing that risk as they're scaling up their operations? Right. So basically, that's a function of required investments in their research and development and their clinical trials and their regulatory activities, you know, the ramp up of manufacturing, uh, getting storage, distribution, et cetera, lined up. On the one hand, what's known as the PTRS or the probability of technical and regulatory success, on the other hand. And then it's kind of simple math. The, the PTRS for vaccine candidates generally is fairly low, you know, based on past data, around 3 to 5% of all the candidates that start development will end up being an approved vaccine. For COVID, you know, one client that we work with in this field has estimated the chance of success of just three of the leading candidates that are currently in advanced trials at around 5 to 10%. So if you're making a substantial investment, this fall or this past summer in securing manufacturing capacity to eventually produce one of those candidates next year, that puts your risk of losing that investment, which could be several hundreds of millions of dollars or more, at roughly 90 or 95%, give or take, depending on where you see the chances of success. 
Wow, those are pretty low odds. What kind of challenges are you seeing with your clients? How can they manage risk when so much is unknown? Yeah, as I said, I think the biggest challenge, you know, is the higher at-risk investment at a very early stage, and then the competition, really unprecedented competition for manufacturing capacity that we really haven't seen at this scale before. What you need to kind of know is background here, the manufacturing process transfer and the ramp up to produce one of these pharmaceutical products or vaccine in this case, usually takes up to 10 or 12 months to get a manufacturer ready to produce the product. So to be ready for production next year, you need to put in place and reserve that capacity and line up your manufacturer and start the technology transfer right now or last summer if you want to be ready with commercial supply you know, in mid-2021. And to reserve capacity right now, it's a tight market. And what the manufacturers are telling customers is that you basically need to pay in advance for all the badges that you think you'll need you know, in the course of the first year or the first two years of production on a take or pay basis. So you pay for those batches even if you never successfully complete development of your product and will never manufacture a single batch. Uh, cancellations usually very limited just because the ramp up processes are so long. So unless you cancel it a year in advance, you know, and that's too late now for, for production ramp up in mid-2021, you may end up paying 100% because the manufacturer will not be able to switch to a different process and use that capacity for a different product or a different customer in time. So Rufus, would a company be able to transfer a reserve capacity if they don't use it? So difficult. We usually try to give our clients that option if they are the ones reserving capacity, but it's very difficult in practice, almost impossible sometimes to do that in a timely manner, especially if you're talking about a transfer between platforms. So the vaccine types that Otis talked about, an RNA or DNA vaccine versus you know an inactivated virus or antibody vaccine, those just aren't compatible manufacturing processes or facilities even. Each would have different manufacturer likely. Even if you're talking about the same platform, it takes a long time because you still would need to do a new technology transfer. You know, the processes are specific to a product, even if they're two antibody products, and you're still talking 8, 10, 12 months of time that you need to transfer to make a different product. So you couldn't necessarily transfer that to a new partner or a different candidate in time unless you have about a year before you need to do that. Wow. Thanks, Rufus. It's really complicated. Finally, can you tell us a little bit about the Open COVID Patent Pledge? Yeah. So the Open COVID Patent Pledge effort was started by actually a number of technology companies to reduce IP risk in this space for everybody that's developing solutions, whether it's pharmaceutical products or technology solutions or AI you know, related to COVID-19 and to battle the pandemic. It's similar to an open source license, if you will. But as of now, it's mainly been technology companies in the more narrow sense of that word who have signed up. So there aren't any biotech or pharma companies really on that list now, which part of the reason I think is the pledge right now is in effect until 2023. So it's kind of a short term piece, if you will which just probably won't work for many pharma companies that will be ready to launch products, you know, just a year before that. And then we'll look at a much, much longer commercialization period. So I think the biotechs and the pharma companies are probably less likely to try to take advantage or participate in the patent pledge. You know, we've seen just a couple of weeks ago, Moderna, one of the leading vaccine developers, 
They also made an announcement that they will not enforce certain patents during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think that's a good thing. And we've seen similar efforts you know, with our clients. We've negotiated some of these short-term pledges and commitments. But there are many open questions. For example, whether the Moderna pledge, whether they reserve the right to enforce and seek retroactive damages after the pandemic. So all they said for now is they won't enforce during the pandemic. That doesn't mean they can't collect damages for products that might infringe going back to that time period once products are in the market. So there are many things to consider for clients before relying on these kinds of pledges. Well, thanks very much, Rufus. And thank you, Otis and Bethany, for very informative talks today. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.